Hello, civic-minded, responsible, thrill-seeking females, and welcome to Feminism Out Loud, the podcast where Aussie women discuss feminist topics. And happy to share the with my sisters and my friends who struggle down this road. We would like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on Aboriginal land, the land of the Wajak Noongar people and the Muanina people. This land was stolen, never ceded, and we'd like to acknowledge their elders' um, past, present, and emerging. Every month, we'll be bringing you a mix of discussion, analysis, and interviews with an Australian focus. I'm Laura. I'm Talia. I'm Fraser. And I'm Rachel. So, first up this episode, we're going to be having just a chat about radical feminism and then, like, kind of what it is, what we think of it, the ideas that we think it encompasses, and then we'll be moving on for a bit of an overview of Australian feminism, pros, cons, and what we think's going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. So, I think um, a good way to start off the discussion of radical feminism is to talk a little bit about the word itself. I think um, the word radical gets thrown around in a lot of different contexts and often is sort of um, interpreted in a lot of negative ways, but basically it comes from the Latin word for root. Um, and so radical feminism is all about looking at the root causes of women's oppression and working up from there. So it's a really um, materialist analysis and it's based on um, uh, looking at what happens to women and girls because um, we're born female. Yeah, totally. I think it's also interesting the discussions of the ideas of radical feminism versus the idea of like having a feminism that is radical per se. For instance, there's a large crossover in between, for instance, Marxist feminists and radical feminists. There's quite a blurry border there. For instance, Catherine McKinnon is often considered to be both a Marxist feminist and a radical feminist. I guess there's that big overlap there in um, class-based analyses. So, um, you know, this is a way of... Um, rather than looking at societies, um, little atomized individuals living their individual lives, um, we can sort of look at people um, as classes and see what happens, um, see how they're defined as members of that class um, and what happens to them um, because of the way that class is treated in society. So um, Marxism, for instance, focuses on economic classes, um, whereas feminism um, focuses on um, sex classes and there is a lot of overlap there. Um, both mm -hmm. in the people involved and the way that analysis is um, used to look at what's going on and how we can sort of um, solve some of the problems facing those people in question. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, also I think radical feminists, we also spend a fair bit of time talking about labour and indeed a lot of radical feminists define women by our relationship to reproductive labour specifically and that the root of our oppression is that exploitation of our reproductive labour. Yeah, I think talking about yeah, class and reproductive labor as well. Something that definitely attracted me to radical feminism was that idea of the personal being political. So, like we like radical feminism is a radical feminism is a feminism that is incredibly class based, but it still gets to the root of so many issues affecting women, um, which are often derived from ideas about the privacy of the home and the sanctity of the private sphere and that you can't intrude upon that, you can't have ideas about that. And I think that marrying that class analysis with that material reality of women's everyday lives is a really, really important contrib contribution of radical feminism. Mm. Yeah, I think um, bringing up that phrase of the personal as political is a really... Um, 
quite a nice example from the second wave of how and um, you know how women began to sort of rather than see things like um, domestic violence and um, violence in their personal lives as being something that was an individual issue, um, it started to be seen as something more that affected women on a very broad scale and affected women's ability to function in society on a very broad scale and um, which can be incredibly liberating I think recognising that that's not something that just happens to us as individuals but it happens to us as a group and it also means I think that we can then move from that analysis and um, tackle these problems in a much more effective way because we can join together and tackle them as women as a group rather than as individuals um, separated from one another in our individual homes. So I think, yeah, that's a really great phrase to bring in here as well. I definitely think that that, like kind of all those ideas as a whole also demand action, which is, I don't know if we always do it particularly well, but I'd say they definitely call for action and require it of us. Um, that's something that like I think is a little bit missing from um, like other, other avenues of feminism that are getting a bit more attention at the moment. Um, well, I would, um, yeah, I agree with you. I think um, like any any activism that's based on sort of individual problems seen um, individually and separately from things and, and viewing them as something that we have to solve on our own um, is very isolating. It can be exhausting very quickly and it can be very difficult to sort of, I think, I mean, the first stage of acting on anything is realising that you have a problem. And if you, if you frame that problem in terms of um, individual failings and individual um, you know, something that's happening to you as an individual, it's very difficult to come back from that and do something positive. Whereas if you view it as something that happens to a group of people like you who share these characteristics and it's happening to all of us, then it also means that your activism can then um, be group-based and you can join together, which is incredibly empowering in the real sense of the word and can result in these amazing connections between women working together um, to make positive change for ourselves as a class rather than ourselves as individuals yeah i think it also allows if you don't approach the a lot of these issues from that basis of how does this fit into a broader structure how does this fit into like you know a broader like oppressive system like patriarchy then you lose a lot of actual capacity to understand the actions of individuals i think like even if you're purely talking about individual actions if you're only looking at the behavior of one man who like abuses women then it's quite difficult to understand that action without noticing that he is part of a pattern that you know allows a lot more insight into his action be that because it's from male socialization it's just from the way that it's for men's persistent entitlement to women's bodies to the point where they feel that they can physically harm us things like that you lose that capacity to have that insight if you aren't looking at the overall system yeah, and the fact that that's been going on for thousands and thousands of years, that it's been a system that's evolved and changed and undergone that sort of process where it does become harder to recognise. And uh, new ways for them, for males to reinforce these behaviours. Mm. Yeah, I think that's interesting what you say there about um, the continuity of this and the sort of evolution of it. And I would argue that... Um, a lot of the, like the, the very, very deep historical root of a lot of this has been, um, if you want to go back as far even as the development of agriculture and the creation of a surplus um, has meant that, um, you know, living communally no longer made sense. So people began to live in um, smaller, more nuclear families um, and also to have 
possessions and land and things like that to pass on. And you can only do that if you have control over your children and you can only, as a, as a man, and you can only do that if you have control over the women bearing them. So I think that's a really, um, it's a very, very strong historical route that has led to a lot of this is sort of um, viewing women as um, almost the, the means of production and um, so starting off with control over um, reproduction and then, um, yeah, just sort of going from there and it's just continued and snowballed. Yeah. I think also an advantage of radical feminism is having that broader context allows us to make like actual change for women in general. Like it's, you know, easy to talk about wanting to get women into the workforce, but if you're just getting women into the workforce and they're still doing domestic labor at home, that just means that women are having to mother, they're having to do domestic labor, they're having to look after their husbands and work like that's not actually like that does offer some benefits increased financial independence for instance but it doesn't actually fix underlying problems and it creates new problems as well absolutely Mm. yeah ultimately it does it does mean that we have to seek to change the very nature of the relationship between men and women in our society and what that interaction is interpersonally in the wider sphere, in government, like all levels of human existence, we do need to change how men and women interact and what that hierarchy is and the effects of that, which I think is why we do get a reputation for radical feminism meaning really, really extreme, which as much as it's used to discredit us, I don't think it's actually completely unreasonable because realistically that to is deal the, with... Mm, that or, is the goal of radical feminism, to address the root causes of our oppression and find ways to fix them. Mm, Exactly. And for that, we'd need a massive upheaval of male-female relationships and hierarchy, and that does come across as a bit extreme to people. Yeah, especially men. (laughs) (laughs) They feel personally attacked Mm, by it. Yeah. And it's like, you know what, our... While our reaction does have quite a... Like, while radical feminism does have, have quite a, you know... Try like a goal of like absolute societal transformation as our end goal and that is quite like an extreme thing i don't think it's honestly that much of an extreme reaction to be like we need to burn this whole thing down when this many women are being raped this many many women are being beaten and murdered absolutely i think it's an entirely reasonable reaction to be like we want we, this violence to stop yeah yeah and we need to accomplish that in a way that will actually stop this violence it, it's quite funny that Radical feminism does tend to come across as being extreme no matter which particular thing we're talking about, like whether we're talking about this sort of stuff of the big massive social transformation or if we're just talking about, no, could we please have some more domestic violence shelters, please? That would actually really help women out. That's something that we need. Or if we're talking about kind of women's choices and false and false consciousness and all that sort of thing, we kind of get painted with that brush. Yeah, true. I think that's the case. And I think it is, um, I think, yeah, it comes from the idea that the label extremist is thrown around to discredit people. Like you see it when people use the phrase far left um, in a derogatory fashion, the same way, you know, someone might use the phrase, you know, communist uh, in a derogatory fashion. It comes from, it's just an attempt to discredit anything that goes against the status quo, right? And I think that's inevitably going to happen to radical feminism. And I think, you know, the fact that our enemies 
have so much, much control. Yeah, and if yeah. they're this interested in discrediting, you know, radical feminism, I reckon considering that we live under such, you know, a pervasive system of patriarchy, it probably means we're doing something right if this many men have a problem with our ideology. I think bringing it back to what Rachel started us off with in this segment about um, getting to the root of patriarchy. I might have already mentioned this, but it is something that you don't tend to see from other areas of feminism. It's just kind of a nebulous thing for why. Yeah, not much, not much acknowledgement of exactly why women. I wouldn't say there's really not even much acknowledgement. There's just doesn't seem to be an understanding that that might be a good or useful constructive thing to talk about and think about and that that might actually help guide the way that we address things like given that radical feminism does see the root of patriarchy being around the exploitation of women's reproductive labor whether you think that that happened as a start of agriculture or you think that that happened pre-agriculture from kind of the dawn of humanity that there was an opportunity to exploit women's reproduction for even purposes in those times that does direct us to having a focus on the family reproductive rights domestic violence everything in that private sphere that no one wants no one wants anyone else to touch yeah i think that um the hist- i mean yeah the historical um the reason why we've ended up within a second class oppressed sex class um, and, you know, things that don't seem to have a direct connection um, to reproductive labour, things like, uh, just off the top of my head, catcalling, for instance, and objectification, those all, um, if you don't see them in a historical context, it can be very difficult to sort of link back mm. to why these things are done and why they happen to women. But if you see that they function, they perform a very important function in establishing and maintaining the subordinate class, um, then you can see the the role that they. It's for. yeah, it's used as a tool to keep us in fear. I think catcalling is actually a great example because you can look at it as being oh, that's men intimidating women, that's exerting power, that stops us from being able to exist and function in the public sphere as well. So it helps keep us contained to that private sphere where so much of female oppression does occur. But it's also a symptom of. But it's also a symptom of men's entitlement to women and forcing that entitlement on us and normalizing it, so that as a culture we are more likely to go along with ideas like women need to have sex with men, women need to give men children, women need to wait on men hand and foot. Like it always goes back to that root cause. Yeah, and I think that's something that you know, radical feminism in particular is dedicated to. It is taking all of these experiences of being a woman under patriarchy and attempting to basically collect them all together and be like how does this fit together why does this happen i think that question of why is something that really separates radical feminism and and basically a lot of any other real radical ideology tends to come from that question of asking why getting to the root of the problem you know as rachel said and from there building up your understanding rather than starting with these symptoms these like you know twigs off the top of the patriarchy tree and trying to prune them away while not aiming for a deeper understanding touch on a little bit from that is that when we do talk about 
radical feminism getting to the root we don't even necessarily mean just to the root of female subordination because you know it is an idea in radical feminism that the oppression of women is the oldest oppression it is the core act of domination with which our society was built on and that certainly doesn't diminish any other forms of oppression and i think that there's still a lot of nuance available in that space for the origin of oppression generally and also how it functions in today's life but i think that's also something else that does distinguish radical feminism is that not even necessarily the oppression of women but the dominance of men and how that has always influenced society even with intersecting oppressions and intersecting hierarchies is that the the supremacy of males has always been part of those other hierarchies and the women in those other hierarchies have always been below the men and that this is just an oppression that permeates everything in our world and it's what so much harm in our world has been based on. So I guess with all of that, um, the, all of the talk about the getting to the root of the problem, I think I would say that that's a very, that's the vital first step before you can actually do anything um so once you've sort of got to that stage of examining what's really causing what the issues are then you can go on and do something about it and actually get active and start changing things so with that in mind um it's a yeah, good time to have a bit of a discussion about um what the state of feminism is in australia and some of the negative things that are happening here but also some of the really um positive amazing things that are going on um and the work that australian feminists are doing so maybe we could kick off with abortion in Queensland. I think that's a pretty kind of telling thing, both on just the climate of women in Australia, that women in Queensland can generally not legally access abortion. It is part of their criminal code. But also the fact that, because at the moment, um, there was a bill recently tabled in their state parliament, which has now since been pulled as far as I'm aware. But um, while they did have a, a pretty good visible response in Queensland to that, wider in Australia, we just haven't seemed to have cared. We just haven't seemed to have paid attention. There's not been much support going out. There's not been much awareness going out. There just hasn't been a push to apply that pressure on the Queensland um, legislative body to get that change. Yeah, like I've seen some really great protests going on in Queensland about it and that's been really, really cool to see. But it just seems like there's been an absolute lack of discourse about it in, well, at least from you know where we are in WA. Yeah, I, have, I haven't really heard much of anything about it, Yeah, to be fair. And I think a lot of that comes from when you say the phrase abortion criminalization people even though we're all australian women we think of america <laughs> we think mm. of ireland yeah we think not not even ireland necessarily like most often people think of you know america oh you know trump's going to criminalize abortion over there which is or whatever which you know obviously like a terrifying prospect but it's illegal in queensland like right here in our own backyard and there just seems to be even among like a lot of women and a lot of like feminist discourse in Australia, it seems to be 
ignoring something that is obviously a really blatant material issue for Australian women in favor of abstract outrage about what's going on in the United States. I think there is a definite lack of awareness over here about what the legal status is of abortion in this mm. country. I mean, it's it's um, differing state to state. But, yeah, they are, like, our laws are not as progressive, I think, as a lot of people would imagine them to be. Yeah. Um, we had a similar debate in Tasmania to what um, a few years ago to what's happening in Queensland now because we had abortion on our criminal code as well and it's now been removed. But, yeah, it was very, very recently that this happened um, and the debate was a bit of a shock to a lot of people, I think, because it wasn't – it's not – it doesn't get the same um, press coverage that the issue does in the US and there's not the same – uh, social tension existing around it that there is over there so it's not something that's in the public eye as much yeah and i think also even in you know states where they where abortion is like legal you end up with just there's, there's not enough access to it people can't afford it women can't access it if they live in a regional or remote area in particular and that's just often not discussed and this is you know, people will discuss, oh, no, the state of abortion in WA is absolutely fine. Like, it's completely fine, <laughs> ignoring that these access issues exist. Yeah, particularly given that, like, there are protesters outside abortion clinics in WA. We don't have exclusion zones or anything like that, any protection yeah. for women who are trying to access these services. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it might not be as bad I guess like it's not as big they're not as in your face they're generally kind of quiet prayers by the roadside but when you're in that vulnerable position that can be daunting yeah an incredibly daunting prospect to have to walk in under those circumstances and there's just not a lot of push to deal with that or really put that on top of the feminist agenda in Australia or WA and I suppose obviously that's on us as well we all consider ourselves feminists Mm, mm, um but yeah that is something where the silence is kind of deafening especially considering what we hear about that we hear so much about abortion from the united states which you know obviously good to keep up with what's going on in the rest of the world right but the associated lack of you know interest in abortion in australia is yeah i think that's probably a good segue into um that as a broader issue in and of itself Mm. is sort of the influence of american politics on australia um, and I think the influence of American feminism on Australian issues and what we sort of um, end up focusing on and what we, where we direct our energy, especially with a lot of activism now happening online and a lot of um, connecting happening online, it's very easy to sort of get sucked into the American focus and to know a lot about American politics and not necessarily as much as what's going on in our own backyard. It is absolutely. So I think that's sort of yeah, I'm issue to discuss quite, well. quite guilty of that. <laughs> the the influence of american politics on australian activism is one of my ultimate pet peeves honestly <laughs> gets me going like um yeah. you know we saw massive support for the women's march um on for the women's march on washington like there were a lot of support marches happening around australia in capital cities and you know as much as that is great and i definitely don't think that we'd want to see less caring on any front but it would be marvellous if we could get those sorts of numbers and support for issues that are women's issues in Australia. Because I've seen a few large marches in Australia, but well, in Perth rather, um, but none of them have 
been as big as that, particularly considering the amount of time they had to organise it in Perth. It was like two days and they still got 50 people or something, which was incredibly impressive. Hmm. Yeah, I don't really know what there is really to say about this topic that isn't just reinforcing the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think that, you know, if we as feminists keep in mind that, you know, we should keep up focus on australia and i think that's part of what we're yeah. trying to do with this program is become more informed about what's yeah. happening where we actually live and yeah. how women are affected mm. people women that we interact with every day in yeah, our lives yeah. like i think that's something that you know we want to do with this program is help women get involved in a get involved in real life activism that's happening in australia but also get ourselves and help others be informed with about cool things that are happening, cool feminist things and not so good things that are happening for Australian women. Yeah. And yeah, thinking globally and acting locally. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One of those things that I think it does actually make Australia stand, stand out a little bit is actually the influence of the sex industry. Like, on, the every... on the politics here. Yeah. Mm, mm, cause, yeah. The Australian know, sex party. Yeah, like we're not seen as... Like, we're not seen as being as conservative as other countries. We're we're seen as a lot more, like, I guess, laid back in regards to that. And that's such a great foothold for, yeah, people like the Sex Party or Eros to have influence in this country. And that's always going to have an effect on women in Australia. Yeah, I think that's true. And just things like Eros having influence over a lot of the academic publications about sex in Australia is something I quite fight I find quite interesting and is yeah something that I want to know more about it. I know I've read some things about it in Big Porn Inc and that sort of thing but yeah I something that I think is quite an interesting state of affairs that we have such a strong sex industry lobby that is just often kind of it's like an open secret kind of everybody knows that there's kind of a sex industry lobby around but nobody really talks about it and i think that's something that we as feminists should like you know bring to light i think it's it can be difficult because it's often couched as being the, the sex industry influence is often couched as being coming from the voices of survivors mm. or um you know people who are in the industry now which i would argue is largely not the case uh, but it's also one of the positive things that's happening in Australia now is that um, a lot of survivors of the sex industry are organising and there's a lot of stuff going on that's sort of um, speaking out against that and giving an alternative perspective to the one uh, presented by um, organisations which largely function to speak for the sex industry rather than the people in it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, like I know it was great to actually get to attend the launch of Prostitution Narratives, which is a collection of experiences from women who survived the sex industry. But then it is also quite telling that pretty much every single one of those book launches, except for maybe save a couple, um, were protested <laughs> because women were daring to talk about their experiences. It's quite a sad state of affairs. Yeah. But on the other hand, how amazing is it that we've got our very own feminist publishing house in Australia, um, yeah. which are uh, 
quite active and putting out um, quite radical publications and um, really looking quite deeply at some of these issues, which I think have um, previously been overlooked. Yeah, no, um, Spinifex Press is a, a gem. Um, I just really appreciate ha- it having it in Australia, like even just for the symbolic factor of it's just that you can get radical feminist works published in Australia. There is somebody who's willing to do it. There is, you know, a group that will publish Sheila Jeffrey's books and that sort of thing. I think that's really great. And I think they do put out a lot of really good content and help elevate the voices of, for instance, you know, survivors of the sex industry. Um, yeah, I agree. And I, th- I think having those resources available to us is such an excellent um, – I mean, it's an excellent way to get informed, but it also can be a really great sort of rallying point for women who have these perspectives who maybe feel a little bit isolated from the mainstream discourse to have such a strong presence, um, you know, airing these views and making them available to people, I think is a really, really positive thing for feminism in Australia. Yeah. I think Spinifex also has the advantage of they've been around for quite a while now. Um, like they've clearly come out of a kind of, second wave sort of activity so having that visible presence of i think older women in feminism is also really valuable because like we're all younger women here however you want to define that and having those older women still being a part of the movement still doing things and also like with with this in such a material way is really wonderful to have here absolutely and and speaking as a younger woman um I think having that visible that that visible presence is very very inspiring and feeling like that in, intergenerational connection just generally can be quite um, quite strengthening. I think knowing that that's out there. Yeah. Something I think I find quite strange about Australian culture, and especially like you know attitudes towards women, is that we seem to have a perpetual discussion about domestic violence going on. That is something that is relatively often discussed in Australian media and I'm not sure if that if that discussion happens quite as much in other countries but yeah it's very frequent to see just advertisements talking about the domestic violence against women even on public transport Mm. on television yeah but it's also paired with things like a lack of funding for domestic violence shelters and a lack of funding for services it's like there's this constant conversation going on but Nothing's being ha- – Yeah, it, it hasn't turned into like a massive rally of support for the services that are trying to help women escape domestic violence. And I would argue bringing that back to the sort of um, radical framework that we've been talking about, part of that is to do with the way that the conversation is being had and the focus on um, individual people, bad eggs, bad apples, unfortunate events, good men behaving badly rather than – a wider, larger, deeper, more structural conversation about the causes of violence and the reason why it is so prevalent in our society. Yeah, I think it also just helps it make sense how, he, how you know, this dude can be a good bloke and even the best blokes seem to end up, you know, murdering women. I think it's important to have a discussion, you know, that, that, that makes no sense unless you're understanding it in the context of men are socialized this way. This is a feature that men are brought up like this belief system that women are lesser women are inferior women are property is something that is men are raised with 
like all men, regardless of how nice they are. Because I think if you if you lack that understanding, then it what is your other option really for you know this nice bloke murdered his wife? It's to blame her. It is to say that she must have done something wrong, or it is to you know provide any number of excuses other than you know holding him and all men account and like to account for their actions and their belief and the belief systems that that allow these actions to go unchecked. Yeah, I think it also contributes to this bizarre and often quite damaging discourse about mental health mm. um, rather than, you know, it's sort of the men are described as crazy and it starts to become a, convers- a conversation about mental health when I think it would be much more valuable um, to talk about it in terms of structural violence and that, like you were saying, Fraser's socialisation and things like that rather than this really individualistic focus and a focus on mental health which doesn't do anything positive for people who are actually um, struggling with mental health issues. Yeah, I think, you know, it comes down to attempting to discuss any mental health issue outside of a radical context and outside of an understanding of the material conditions of people's lives will always fall short because you can discuss, like, you you can discuss, you know, people and their sick brains all you want, but it still doesn't actually, like, perhaps these people might be doing better if you fix the underlying conditions of, you know, poverty or that sort of thing. Like, perhaps, and I think, you know, it turns into this, especially in this country we have, because we have, you know, I think almost in a similar way to we have it as constant discussion about DV without actually a lot being done about domestic violence. We have a lot of discussions about mental health without an actual getting like actual positive outcomes. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, I don't think that really has been providing much positive outcomes for people with like struggling with like, like struggling with mental health issues. I think it's the same thing. No, I think it's far more likely to increase stigma than it used to. Yeah. What were you going to say? I think there's, like, in that same vein with sexual assault on university campuses, there's a lot of discussion about university reporting and how the universities as institutions manage those sorts of events on their campuses, but there doesn't seem to be any real change arising from that and any discussion about why perpetrators do these things and how to stop them before terrible things happen to women that's just absent because the conversation just partly because it hasn't been framed in that way and also because we just don't have the woman power to be covering that many bases Mm. yeah i think discussions of sexual assault on university campuses are quite strange in that way because there is a lot of focus on yeah the institutions and a lack of focus on in a way yeah, why men do that why women are being raped at university and i think a lot of the ways that people are trying to tackle rape at university like why men rape women at universities is coming across from that very much like handing out condoms that say not without consent on them and that sort of thing and while you know obviously consent is important it doesn't come down like it's not actually addressing the underlying issue of why would a man care so little about a woman that he would hurt her to that extent like that he would rape her like at the end of the day why would why would a man care so little about a woman that he would do that um why would he ignore that consent um yeah and i think without having that conversation about why men feel like it's okay to have sex with a woman when she doesn't want to have sex 
having a discussion about, you know, make, like, make sure you have consent is only getting less than half the picture. That's another thing that we stole from, from America as well. Sorry, it's the harp on my pet peeve. It, it's a great thing. Like, it's one of the benefits, but I, like, did anyone else notice that, that talking about rape on campus became a big thing in America before it came over to Australia? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously we should have that conversation and it has brought to light some interesting things like UWA refusing to release their statistics about yeah. Um, yeah. rape on campus. Also just the fact that we call it rape on campus because that's not really what we would, we normally don't really tend to, we would probably call it like uni, university, like rape at university or at uni. I think even that language portrays that it sort of came across in the United States. And while it is, you know, a good thing to talk about it is, yeah, shows the extent to which the United States shaped our discourse. So this has been a problem for years. It's been going on for years. And we've had investigations into university culture before, for instance, with things about camps, things about college, like bad college cultures and cultures of hazing. But we, but there was never that sort of intense focus on sexual assault before until, yeah came over from the US almost. One thing that Australia does really have going for us, it's a small thing, but I really like it, is the Untamable Shrews, who are a street art collective. Is that the right term for them? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Like they're going around and like some of it is just putting up like stickers and posters, kind of culture jamming, that sort of practice. They're also defacing graffitiing covering up some pretty bad posters around the place as well that are promoting sexist events and things like that so that's just really refreshing to see it warms your heart absolutely it's like the itty bitty titty committee reclaiming public space for women <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. and because women women who catch public transport walk around cities they'll be able to see this and if they're interested they can get in contact it's a way to recruit <laughs> recruit yeah feminists you know i think it also is it clay it it does claim space for women and space in the public sphere for a like radical feminist discourse in a way like and while it's not you know single-handedly going to start the revolution i think it's when there is this little public discourse about radical feminism i think something like what the untamable shrews is doing is really clever because it does start that discourse it gets in people's faces and it gets in the public and i think um it can help with uh, removing the isolation of people who, of women who do hold radical feminist ideas and don't know how to contact other women to get involved in radical feminism. They'll yeah. be able to see this, that there's actively a physical presence in the, well, offline that there are women, <laughs> that there are yeah, women I- that are, you know, willing to say these things. Yeah, and I think it does, and I think, yeah, getting across that border from the internet and into the physical world is really important because I think having a, like, strong in-person on the streets radical feminist movement is what we need. And while I think this, you know, is a very, very good step towards creating that in its infancy, I really like it. I also think it's really cool. Um, Yeah, I think... um I think fulfilling that function as a really open, visible, public presence is just a fantastic sort of uh, thing to have in Australia and thing for people to be able to see and sort of start thinking about those ideas when they might not necessarily uh, 
have no people, but it's sort of, yeah, this, this much, this very public presence. Yeah, they may not have actively sorted out on the internet. So it's, yeah, like, um, I don't know who said it, but it's very in your face. Mm. It's like radical feminism as a discourse answers questions you didn't know you had is how I would describe it. Yes. And mm-hmm. I think getting women to start thinking about these questions is the first step of, you know, raising their consciousness and creating a like strong feminist movement that can liberate women. And, you know, as we're talking about, you know, reclaiming public space for women and organizing in person, we can move right along to our upcoming feminist events in Australia. So as part of keeping feminism on the ground and getting everyone involved in real life activism, Feminism Out Loud likes to give some information on events that are happening in Australia throughout the next month. We've mostly gotten these events from Facebook, also organizers that we know. If you have an event that you'd like us to put on the podcast, please do contact us and we'll put it into the next episode. So we're launching right before International Women's Day uh, this month. So there's a few things coming up on Wednesday, March the 8th. Uh, if you're in Melbourne on Wednesday, there's an event being put on by CATWA, which is the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women Australia. This is being held at RMIT University um, from 6.30 in the evening till 8 o'clock and it'll be a special feminist forum. The theme for the event will be the sex industry is not compatible with gender equality and there'll be a few different speakers there and it'll also be a launch of the updated CATWA report. So if you're in Melbourne, uh, get along to that one if you can. If you're a little bit further south in Hobart, there's another event happening. Um, this one put on by NORMAC, which is the Nordic Model Australia Coalition. It's a forum titled Men's Violence to Women, a Broader Conversation. This will be in the long room at Parliament House in Hobart and it'll go from one o'clock in the afternoon to three o'clock. Again, there's a few great speakers uh, going to be at that one. So if you're in Hobart, get along to that one if you can. If you're out here in Western Australia, Reclaim the Night Perth is going to be having a stall in the Murray Street Mall um, in the CBD for International Women's Day. We'll just be handing out flyers and asking women what issues are affecting them on this International Women's Day. Uh, there's also other heaps of cool stuff that's happening on International Women's Day. Um, to find out events near where you live, go to www.internationalwomensday.com forward slash events. Coming up in March, the First Nations Homelessness Project is also doing a Busy Bee North of the River. The First Nations Homelessness Project is a completely non-profit, non-funded group who seek to prevent the homelessness of First Nations people by doing things like helping clean houses or help with rubbish removal to prevent eviction and to stop people from ending up on the streets. So that's happening on the 26th of March. It'll be running for the whole day, but people can just drop in whenever you've got a spare hour or two. For more information, you can look them up on Facebook, or if you can't find them, contact us and we'll get you in contact with the relevant people. Reclaim the Night Perth, which is a community group that organizes against male violence against women, are having our ongoing organizing meetings regularly. So this, these happen every two weeks at the State Library of Western Australia. So to find more about that, look up Reclaim the Night Perth on Facebook or once again, get in contact with us and we can put you in contact with Reclaim the Night Perth.
That brings us to the end of the first episode of Feminism Out Loud. I hope you've enjoyed it and thank you very much for listening. We're really excited about this project and we're looking forward to bringing you more episodes in the future. The next one should be out in about a month. In the meantime, you can contact us with suggestions, event details and things like that at feminismoutloud at gmail.com, all one word. You can also search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr um, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Once again, thanks for listening and we'll see you next month.